Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Hey, welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. Really excited to be back with you today and to bring this interview I had with Tony Blauer. Now, for those of you in law enforcement, military correction, security, you guys know who Tony is. You guys are very familiar with who he is, what he does, the spear system with high gear. For those of you who don't, all of his information will be linked on our show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 013. You can check him out at blowerspear.com or simply Google Tony Blower. The guy's got over 40 years of experience in law enforcement and martial arts training. So we're going to get into a conversation today about martial arts, training smart, and what it means to be a martial arts or self-defense instructor in today's world. So I'm really excited to bring this interview. Hopefully it's some new stuff that you haven't heard from him before. And if it is, it's worth hearing again. So let's jump right into it. This is the interview I had with Tony Blau. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Um, I know you're extremely busy. You're kind of the go-to for a lot of people in law enforcement, instructors, trainers, and the and the like. So thank you for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, that's very flattering. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be here. To give everybody a little bit of context, I'd actually put something out on social media asking what was everyone's thoughts when it came to defensive tactics training programs or martial arts systems specifically for law enforcement officers. And so let's just get into it, man. What, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I should just be the bull in the China shop or if I should be like the wise old sage and, you know, everything works in a demo. I've been saying that for 30 years. The most important thing that I kind of want to preface whatever comes out of my mouth because I don't know what I'm going to say uh, on these things. Everyone believes that their system has the answer. And as a lifelong martial artist, and just for context for everyone out there, I'm 59 years old. I've been doing some sort of combatives. I started wrestling when I was seven. So for 52 years of my life, I've been doing something, whether it's boxing, taekwondo, wing chun, uh, mixed martial arts, jujitsu. I've da- I've dabbled my entire life. Not even dabbled. It's I mean, it's my career. I don't know why I said dabbled. It's it's my career. It's what I do. And in this day and age, with what's going on in society, it's a horrific time to be in law enforcement. You have a combination. I'm off on one of my amazing tangents here. You have a combination of of budget cuts, a incredibly horrible narrative. Uh, against police officers propagated by the media and other interest groups. You've got, in many cases, a scared political leadership that I've had police officers that I know that can't afford to get to the training. So I comp them a slot. I say, it's free, get there. You just need the time off from your agency. And they've been denied because you've got uh, part of the leadership afraid to have people train for fear that if that officer does something and it's recorded and, and, and edited by, you know, the media in the, in the right, wrong way, that it'll come back to them that they encouraged, you know, some sort of combative training or defensive tactics training. It's ridiculous what's going out there. 
and it's emotionally very stressful and people aren't getting the right the right training for science institute the lewinsky group you know came up with a, a two-part study that they did a study of, retra- of training in canada the usa and the uk and without a doubt concluded that the training they're getting in the academy does not prepare them for the violence they're going to meet in the street. Now, this is something I've been saying for 30 years. I've been training cops full-time since 1993. If you look at the old um, uh, Tula drill demo that was that was done by Caliber Press years ago, where you know they, video, they, they did a videotape of uh, a police officer with a training weapon and some and a bad and another cop as a role player with a training knife in an empty parking lot and they filmed and pro- and showed evidence that, yeah, you need 21 feet to draw your weapon and get offline and engage the threat. And everyone like, well, that became the standard and that became misunderstood where people thought, oh, that's a 21 foot rule. Well, it was really showing that you have a big problem if somebody's got a knife. That was the message. <laughs> and I would tell people, I go, when's the last time you arrested somebody in a 21 foot room with no furniture, right? And the, and the guy was standing there with a knife. And what I look at when I see that, and like this was the standard for decades, and I remember talking at Aslet and then Ailita about this saying, guys, everyone in that demo knew it was a demo. What would have happened to the the intensity of the run uh, of the attacker if we said to him, we whispered in his ear, hey, by the way, that cop has a real gun and it's loaded and you've got a training knife, so you've got to get on him fast. Like he'd have gone what the fuck did you just say? He's got a real gun. I'm not doing this, right? That would have changed his mindset. Or if he was still going to go for it, it would have changed his aggression. Now, what would have happened if I had said to the cop with the training blanks, by the way, that's a real knife and he's going to shank you if you don't, if we don't hear the round go off. He'd be like, oh, what the fuck did you just say? I'm not, that's a real knife. I'm not doing that without a real gun. What I've done, my my career, the most important stuff that I've researched is the relationship between fear, the psychology of fear, not the biology of fear, and performance and how fear and how you think about it afflicts performance. So I took all of that intuition and instinct after doing 13 years of scenario training when I lived in Canada. And, um, and I noticed in all that training that people who thought they were going to pull off certain moves, their favorite go-to moves, didn't usually make that happen when the scenario was really realistic. And we were experimenting with with adding like dialogue and scenarios. And I'd say, okay, you're not a cop in this scenario. You're a guy at a bar and 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 you bump into somebody accidentally. And everyone had like 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 dialogue and little, little characters. So suddenly when you, because a lot of people, when they thought they were practicing, let's say scenario training, were actually in fighting stances, like sparring. And I said, no, 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 no. Like, like you got a flashlight in your hand, you're looking at a guy's ID and then he sucker punches you. This is not like, you're not standing in in the boxing class at the, at the academy and going wax on wax off like that. That's, important to build a skill set but that's not scenario-based training which is the only place you can stress inoculate assume everybody talking about their system is like a car salesman you know at, at the lot and he just wants to make his commission and sell you his car i said me included if i thought somebody else's approach was better why wouldn't i be working for that company so you can ask anybody if their system's the best 
And in some fashion, they're going to say yes, and here's why. And, you know, and it's okay if they believe it, and it's not okay if they don't believe it, but everyone believes their stuff is the right stuff. And so the litmus test isn't what the salesman says. The litmus test is the dashboard video. The litmus test is the CCTV. It's not what you believe. It's what we see. And when you look at, as I have, and hopefully many of your listeners have or will following this call, if you look at the famous and not so famous videos of uh, police-involved shootings, uh, uh, knife fights, EDPs, emotionally disturbed person, you know, calls, uh, vehicle stops, just anything that's captured, whether in this day we've got a lot of footage on uh, smartphone from, from stupid people, right? And so if you look at that through the filter of what martial art are all these cops doing? What is being used here? And, and it doesn't even to be the martial art. It's, you know, what part of their defensive tactics a program that they were certified in qualified to, to, to do, are they using? And what I did in, in a decade of, of reviewing stuff is I didn't see any evidence that what was being taught manifested itself in a real confrontation. You tracking that is like, if I look at the classic, uh, you know, videos that were shown in all academies, they're always showing like cops who failed to do the right thing and ended up getting killed or injured and the bad guy escapes. But I looked at just like force on force, like fights, like real fights. And they were just brawls. If it wasn't for the uniform, you didn't know who the good guy or the bad guy was at, at different points in the fight. Nobody looked good. And you never saw a clean kick or a clean punch or a clean. And listen, there's probably somebody on the call going bullshit. I remember once I saw this video of, of, uh, do you remember that there was a video of a defensive tactics instructor who walked across the street and did a brachial stun to a pimp who was harassing his one of his girls? Yeah, it was, it was a karate. Yeah. And like everyone's like, yeah, you see that? And I'm going like that DT instructor, karate instructor, sucker punched a pimp. And a one in a million shot that he dropped. Right. But, it, but it, listen, we know the brachial plexus works. But people used to show that as like, see, that works. And I'm like, that's not a real fight. That's not a real bad guy trying to, a social predator trying to not go to jail. That changes everything emotionally and psychologically for you. Did you see the video of um, Brian Dalton? He got stabbed in the neck four times with the screwdriver. No, no. He went viral. So there's a cop in Ohio. I wrote an article for Caliber Press. We should link it in the show notes because it's pretty, it's pretty potent. But if it weren't for the startle flinch response, I believe that he probably would have been murdered that day. He was stabbed four times in the neck. And you're del- if you're getting stabbed in the neck, you're an inch away from subclavian artery or carotid artery or your eye. You know, like you're like in that area where any one of those shots can take you out. Uh, he was able to, with a single arm, uh, transition to his weapon and shoot the guy and the guy died on the scene. Um, and it's all caught on body cam. But what's amazing for it is, is like this guy refuses to sign a summons. And uh, so, you know, SOP is, well, I'm going to write refusal to sign summons. He's sitting up in a, the cab of a, of a, you know, one of those, you know, big trucks. Yeah, I have seen this video. Yeah, I know. Which one. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, 
like this guy's got elevation on you and now you're looking down writing on your summons and the guy used that moment to grab the screwdriver in the door jump off there and attack him and if you watch it again after listening to this call and and go read what i wrote you know this guy was a firearms instructor for his academy hadn't done the spear system i wish he had because you see finger splayed outside 90 just like i tell people the body's biological airbag but i spoke to dalton after the call and you know he said yeah you know like uh you know i practice always like you know creating space and 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 he had no idea what he did with the finger splayed outside 90 like it was happening so fast and he was stabbed before he shot the guy um so and you hear him yelling as you know you heard the thing and you know as he's getting hit but if you watch it again you'll see his his shooting arm is is uh uh his gun side is up on the guy's stern and pushing him away so think about that you're, even though you're trained to do a speed rock and get your lip, what would have happened, visualize this, if, he, if, if his support hand went to his sternum so he could do like, like that close quarter speed rock, you know, like when you're, when you're practicing up on a range, because mm-hmm. we develop these range tactics because we don't want to shoot our hand or an elbow. So that, that support hand at an extreme close quarter uh, um, shooting always comes inside. And I look at that, I go, but in real life, your hands will be out pushing away the danger if somebody's trying to bite your head off or stab you with a screwdriver. And people are like, what, really? And I'm like, yeah. And and so, you know, when, when when there's like, you see a cop getting dragged by a car, was he actually trying to stop the car? Does he think he's Superman? Of course not. What happened was he had his hand on the car when the suspect started it and pulled away. And it happened so fast and he was surprised that his body clamped down on it. When you flinch, if you're holding anything in your hands, you clamp down on it. And now his arms, his uh, uh, hand is locked on, you know, the, the frame of the car and he's getting dragged. Because nobody would do that on purpose. You wouldn't get dragged down the street on purpose. You would let go as soon as you can. And so, like, this is like if you're, if people, if folks, if you're, if you're a cop and you're listening to this carefully, study this stuff. Again, I said this before, uh, if anything I'm saying is angering you because you're, you're a jiu-jitsu fanatic or Krav Maga fanatic or whatever, I love any martial art that's taught with authenticity and integrity. Some of my best friends are amazing at Krav Maga, like Amir Peretz, one of the most famous Krav Maga instructors in the world. He's a buddy of mine, like a good friend. I have dinner with him up in LA like when I go up there. Uh, I, I'm friends with some of the best jujitsu guys in the world. Nelson Montero, who like, uh, who uh, I think he was one of the guys that jump started the competitions in Abu Dhabi. He's a personal friend of mine. Like, you know, I've 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 trained under him. So, like, when I say stuff, people don't they 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 get this knee jerk reaction. He's I'm trying to make everybody safer. When I was 20, I was asked, "What do I want to do?" I said, "I want to make the world safer." This person, this I was talking to a venture capitalist. I was trying to, like, you know, somebody was trying to help me grow my company and he looked at me said you're trying to make the world safer you don't think that's a little grandiose i was like why would i was 20 years old like why would that be grandiose what's wrong with making the world safer and you know that's what i've been doing ever since and it frustrates me when that this unconscious bias says no that's bullshit this is the if let me give you another airbag metaphor if i'm sitting at the light in my car and you're sitting in the light in your car and beside you is somebody sitting in the light and he's the best jujitsu guy in the world. And there's somebody beside him and he's the best Krav guy in the world. And you're sitting beside the other guy, he's the rest PPCT. We all, and each one of our cars are the cars we want. And our cars are going to be as a metaphor, our body type, ectomorph, mesomorph. We're in shape. We're out of shape. 
And we're sitting there and we all think we're badasses. We all visualize, hey, what would you do here? If I asked every one of you, I asked a Taekwondo guy, what would you do here if a guy did this? He's going to give me a Taekwondo answer, right? If I ask a jujitsu guy, what would you do here? He's going to give me a jujitsu answer. If you ask somebody who trains at us, they're going to say, well, it depends on the scenario. It depends on how I flinched. It depends how fast I converted. It depends on, and I look at stuff and I tell people like there are, are handyman, there are carpenters and there are architects. The handyman can only fix certain things. The carpenter can do a little bit more, but they're basically manipulating tools. They learned how to use tools. The architect knows how to plan and design. And the architect can look at something and go, oh, you want to do an extension on your house there? Okay, great. Don't do that there because of this fault line. You know, when the earth moves, you're going to have to repaint every two years. So you need to put this brace here. In other words, when, when somebody trains with us, we're teaching them how to look at violence from an architect's point of view. So they've got blueprints for violence and they understand it. And that changes their relationship with it. Now, everyone that I teach has a personal, coming back to your original question, you're on your own teaching. Everyone that I teach goes to an MMA school or jiu-jitsu school or a boxing school. They all have their passion. And I tell people, your martial art that you practice should resonate with your personality and it, you should be getting something out of it. There's social culture, there's, there's, there's fitness, there's confidence, there's lots of stuff, but don't just assume it's going to prepare you for sudden violence because the, the, the research and the neuroscience behind that suggests something else. And let me, I know you probably have a question or 10. I haven't talked about front kick, side kick, elbow, you know, hook punch, el, you know, finger jab, right? While there's parts of that in there, when people come to our classes, I don't care what their background was. I'm teaching them how to deploy the airbag, how to convert it, how to weaponize the startle flinch, how to create space, and then threat discriminate. And I'm doing it through a brain-based uh, uh, system that is uh, consistent with uh, uh, modern neuroscience research. I have no problem letting you go on because I knew that there in that in that comment thread, there was going to be a ton of people that said, Hey, this is, you know, this is the best, or this is the best, or it's a combination, or you have to go see this instructor or this instructor, you have to go see Tony, or you have to go see Cressman, or you have to go see whoever. And at the end of the day, it's, it's the physical is, is kind of almost secondary. It, like, like you said, it's, it's a nice to have, but it's, it's secondary to, to having your cognition and everything sorted out first. Well, this is, this is the, the, if I can interject here, like every, cop that's on video of an incident has some physical skills. Some are better than others, but they've all been taught a knee or an elbow or takedown or uh, some cuffing ritual or how to do a palm strike or a punch. But when you see them struggling with an asocial predator, and I use that term specifically because uh, a, a passive resistor, you know, if you, if you had a little bit of time, you could talk them into handcuffing themselves. So the training should only be geared around somebody who's really trying to hurt you. What I coined uh, years ago is a three percenter. You know, 97% of the people, they're, you're going to figure out a way to get them in cuffs. 3% of the people are going to try to kill you to facilitate their escape. They're going to try and hurt you or kill you to facilitate their escape. It's not personal. They just don't want to go to jail. Um, and they're going to do everything they can. So that changes everything. When, when you realize, oh my God, this is going to be a, like a, a gutter fight, possibly to the death. Most people haven't considered that or thought about that, which is why, you know, uh, we spent so much time developing uh, a scenario-based program. And 
like our system is all evidence-based. We don't like, there's no sparring when you train with us. We're not sparring. I'm not, I'm not half the people in the class could probably, you know, tap me out or punch me out. But, you know, I always give them my goal. Angelo Dundee was hired by Muhammad Ali to prepare him for the fight, not to fight him. How long would Dundee, you know, one of the greatest boxing coaches in the world have lasted, you know, in he, he trained uh, Sugar Leonard too. If, if you know, like Sugar, imagine if uh, Ali had said, I'll let you coach me if you can beat me. What a fucking stupid mindset. And that's how a lot of people are. It's like this, this old, like the original roadhouse. So I thought you'd be taller. That's one of the things that I wanted to get into on the show was getting your thoughts and kind of going into the weeds because the difference when we talk about, especially law enforcement, any type of defensive tactics program or system that gets rolled out, there's there's always the agency side, then there's the instructor side, and then there's kind of the student side. And everything kind of evolves around that moral, legal, ethical, tactical, is it defensible argument. And it's different on each level. And what you just touched on there was as an instructor, there's so much more that goes into that. And I know, I mean, you run your instructor level programs as an instructor trainer, and you've been doing it for a long time. So I wanted to ask you, I, to give you a little bit of context, I just did an episode, um, a, an interview with another gentleman, and we were talking all about situational awareness, which is what you kind of brought up earlier. And And during that talk, we got into the topic of, you don't know what you don't know. And as an instructor, I mean, for example, I started out in the Filipino arts. That's that's where I got my martial arts background from. And when I first became a defensive taxi instructor, when I first got my PPCT instructor certificate and I was teaching and going through that program, I thought I was king shit. Right. I thought I knew everything there was. I was a bouncer. At the, you know, I'd been bouncing for three, four years. I had been in fights. I'd tested stuff out on the street. And it was always against untrained, non-motivated people, as you were saying. So you you inflate this version of yourself thinking that I'm the best. You need to listen to me. And now I'm your instructor. So you have to listen to me even more. And it took me 15 years to learn that I didn't know shit about anything. Right. That I was just starting out. Yeah, And I wish I would have known that getting into it. And I wish that people getting into teaching and training and, and it doesn't matter if you're. Let me, let me, let me, let me interrupt here just because I'm 59 and, and I've got three kids. Do you have any kids? I have three as well. Yeah. So, you know, my son's turning 28, my daughter's turning 22, my other daughter's 17. I can't tell them shit, right? My son's starting to listen to stuff because he's approaching 30. It's a cliche, man, but. You know, what I've realized in the last 10 years, in the last two years, it's like I go, man, why didn't I know this when I was in my 20s? I mean, but I remember wiser people telling me stuff in my 20s stuff, and I'd thank them and bow and shake their hand and give them a hug. And then I go, yeah, that's okay. I got this. I'm, I'm, I don't need this. Isn't, this does not apply to me. It's a cliche, but everyone goes through that. And if you talk to anybody, you know, who's who's evolved and there's some people who who their whole life is just a plateau but most people like evolve they get better they get smarter their you know their their life changes as they learn and so you know you're talking about ego and growth and all of that stuff if you asked I, what i was reading between the lines is how do we get newer instructors to kind of listen carefully to a couple of old timers and go like think like this you, you need to have the right mission statement there's a lot of guys I've been ripped off a lot in the industry. And the only reason to steal someone else's intellectual property or equipment is for greed, ego, and pride. There's no other reason. 
you know, uh, it, it's, it's metaphorically, uh, criminal, if not actually in some cases, you know, and so I've, you know, and I, and I bring that up like, because if somebody's personal nature, right. Integrity is who you are when no one's looking is, you know, fuck that guy. I'm going to do this. Like that's going to influence your path and your journey in life. And so maybe had you met me, you know, 15 years ago and you went, so what do you think? I'm really the best in the world, aren't I? You know, it was like, Hey, it's okay to want to be the best in the world, but you always need to be a better version of yourself. And if you're just thinking about, are you the best in the world? Maybe you're not really serving your students. I want to get your thoughts on how, as an instructor, how instructors lie to students and how that kind of manifests and what they should be looking out for so that they're not doing those types of things. Wow. That's a great question. Never heard of that. Uh, and, and I don't even have an answer. Like I've never lied to a student. I, I start off my classes going, Hey, there's no such thing as a stupid question. What's stupid is not asking a question. And if you ask me how you're doing and I change the subject, it means you're not doing well. Cause I can't lie. I tell people right off. I can't lie. I was just thinking about where that started. Right. And I remember, uh, years ago reading an interview with uh sean penn love him or hate him you know i think he's a good actor and i don't get into his politics but he was an interview where i think he had just is it just uh uh him and his wife had just given birth to their first kid and they talked about the impact of it and he said when i'm look i looked down on my kid and i had this insane sensation that i never wanted my kid to look up and see a liar and I remember reading that and it just, I don't know why, but it, it just, it was like tattooed on my brain. I never want my kids to look at me and see a liar. And, uh, you know, there's a picture I got to find it. I'm going to post it of, you know, my son, he's like three weeks old or a month old. And he's in like some, someone had bought me as a baby gift, like, uh, like a Kung Fu, uh, baby outfit. Right. So he's sitting like in like a little, like Kung Fu pajamas, you know, and I'm in my office, uh, and, and, um, I think I had like, you know, an old Apple computer, you know, the, the, the monitor and like really a, an interesting old picture. But I remember like going, that was that moment when I went, you know, not even white lies. Right. And, uh, there's some really interesting, uh, comments, you know, in there. And, you know, like I was, I was thinking about like times where I was reading like a, like a, you know, um, stories like, like of firefighters or cops or paramedics where they're trying to rev save somebody's life and they're dying in their hands. And the person says, am I going to die? And this, and this has nothing to do with the lying stuff, but I remember, you know, it's either the cop or the firefighter or whoever, like trying to emote to the audience reading this. Do you know what it's like to, to, to have to lie to this person and say, no, you're going to be fine knowing that they're, they're about to die. But, like, this is like that example where, I don't, you know, it'll be some contrarian asshole when you post this who goes, are you saying you would never, like, like in a situation like that, you know, you're going to say to somebody, no, you're going to be fine, right? You're not going to say, no, you're about to die, right? Like, like there's, and it comes back to what I do in our scenario training is I tell people like every question is answered with what is the scenario? Because the scenario will dictate what you do next. If I, I ask uh, uh, one of my, in every cop class, I'll go, someone who grabs you by the lapels and slams you against the wall, what do you do? 
and and I'll take three or four answers and it's, you know, knee, elbow, palm strike, gouge, you know, takedown, twist. I go, okay, uh, it's a, it's a hysterical mother and she's grabbed you at a hospital because the daughter was in a, uh, uh, um, uh, a rape victim and she's on life support and she's screaming at you. I want to know who did this. I want to know who did this. And they go, well, of course I wouldn't hit her. And I'm going, well, you just said you would. No, you didn't. You tricked me because you didn't tell me the scenario. And I go, well, that's the whole point. It's what's the scenario. Now go back to that story that I told you when I was working with that military group and I had that jujitsu guy. He had done his, you know, 10,000 hours times three or four for if somebody goes low, elevation change, get ready to sprawl. If he, if he shoots in too fast, you're going to hit a guillotine pull guard. Right. So somebody might just grab you. You know, you're going to get married and your, and your tailor grabs you by the lapels to adjust your suit and you knee him in the balls because you're so fucking well trained. And I'm making a joke, right? To get people to understand there's a deeper side to training. Um, circle back to your question about lying. I don't have an answer to tell you because I, I don't lie to people. You know, they'll go, what do you think about this move? I go, listen. And I've had people, I've had people in my class, you know, are really good at other arts and they go, well, can I do this here? I go, you can do whatever you want, provided it doesn't change the outcome of this scenario. And they're like, what does that mean? I go like, do that 10 times in a row under stress with different role players with high gear on. If you can keep replicating it, then yeah, that's good. But if you can't, then you want something maybe better because then you'll be safer. Like, you know, we always tell people like, like we beg people like the goal of our course and our training is just to make you safer. Are you? And that's one of the questions we ask at the end of the, at the end of the course. Are you safer now than when you started the course? That's that's the 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 the, the goalpost. It's not did you accumulate like three hundred new techniques that you, that we'll never see in a real fight. So so I honestly I don't have an answer for you know uh, and and maybe I misinterpreted it or or whatever. But answering it literally. Uh, you know, or maybe you can give me an example of an instructor lying to a student. Yeah, maybe I maybe think the best way to to maybe to use a different term would be uh, misrepresenting themselves, right? So, like you are you, are you talking about their status, or you're talking about the student's skill set? Both, right? So both. So from the instructor side, basically saying something like, "Oh, you know, oh yeah, I've used this technique a hundred times myself, and da da da," and they've never once actually used it in a real altercation, right? Well, most haven't. Most haven't. Listen, I did. I got an interview by a European group called Playing with the Blade, and they're a big knife fighting group. Scary stuff they're doing. And I got interviewed, and one of the questions they asked me was, "Who do I thought was the most dangerous knife fighter out there?" I said, "Probably some fucker in jail." And they were like, "What?" Like they wanted the name of some like famous instructor. And I went like that famous instructor has probably never been in a knife fight. Most probably haven't. Right. But that doesn't mean that's the Angelo Dundee metaphor. That doesn't mean he's not a great coach and it doesn't mean you can't learn from him. But we like, we, we, we sometimes think like, I can't tell you how many times over the years somebody says, I'd like to see you in the UFC. I've been in the UFC as a coach, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> you know, I've, I've helped some of the best fighters in the world, but you know, hey, but so is Steven Seagal. Don't forget that. Right, right. This is true. <laughs> well, there's the one example that my metaphor just went out the door. <laughs> but uh, 
but you know, like it, it's so complicated. They, you know, listen, if you don't have integrity and self-awareness, then all the philosophical things we're talking about won't matter. You'll hate this interview. You'll go, Oh, Blower's an arrogant prick. And, you know, but if you strive to be a better version of yourself, if, if evolution, if being a better version every week, every day, if self-actualization is actually on your agenda, you know, then being authentic and developing self-awareness and then being the best coach trainer um, that you could be, you know, and that might mean moving on. From, I've like, I this just popped in my head. I did a demo back in, I think it was 1985 uh, at some mall. You know, we just opened up our school and we were doing all the, the usual things, trying to generate interest. And I, I did, I did this demo and this guy, George comes up to me after and he goes, Hey, I'm a black belt local. I've never seen like shit like that. Holy crap. Like, you know, can I come train with you? I was like, yeah. And he comes and he does a class. He says, I love this. He says, but I'm really conflicted because if my instructor found out that I was here, I mean, he'd have a shit fit. I go, why? We do different stuff. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. like saying, man, if Burger King found out that I was cheating on you with McDonald's, like, shut up. You wanted a burger and this was closer. Or you today, you you want a Big Mac with cheese, whatever the fuck, right? I don't eat McDonald's or fast food, but using the example. I looked at him and I said, George, listen, I have no problem that you're a black belt in other school training here. You know, you have an open mind. You want to learn my stuff. If your instructor has a problem, you've got to reconcile that with yourself or tell you, tell your instructor that you're can't train under him if he's going to be pissy about it. I mean, I don't know what to tell you other than, you know, if you love something, set it free. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up quitting that after about six months of training with us and continue went on to, you know, become an assistant instructor. What you said there kind of got me thinking about, you know, the way traditional martial arts used to be. Even when I first started, right. Um, we were all Filipino based schools, but if, if they were from, if somebody was from a competing school, like you don't talk to them, <laughs> you right. know, because it's all families, right. It's, it's, it's families back from, back from the Philippines and they come over and there's, there's real animosity or, 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 or some type of history there, right? Right. It's and and that's the way a lot of schools are like. I mean, with jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, I think that's probably the most well documented because it's the most recent, and it's it kind of got the most media coverage, right? Between you know, with the Gracies and and with all the schools that have branched off and who took what from who and all that kind of stuff. Well, and and there's and there's an example where, you know, is that really intellectual property there? And this isn't like calling the kettle black or or trying to you know, stir up the shit. But like, if you're studying psychology and someone says like, you know, did you invent psychology? And you go, no, I got a degree. And like, well, yeah, I specialize in cognitive therapy or whatever it is. And someone goes like, well, what do you think of Jung or Freud? You don't go, they're assholes. You go, they, their fathers are of modern psychology. You know, a lot of their stuff is, we now know is this or that. I like a little bit of this there, but you're, so the problem is if, if you study judo and jujitsu and Aikido and this and that, and then you open up your own school, you shouldn't be saying like, this is, you know, Rex Kwan Do's way, you know, like it should be, it's like you come up with your business name and then you cite your sources and who inspired you. Lineage. Yeah. Lineage. When I look back on it, I mean, I think that for a traditional martial artist, and I think for the community as a whole, I think that's kind of the the litmus test, 
right, is what is your lineage? Who taught you and who taught them? And where did it come from? Because like you said, there's too many people that that pull things from six different sources and say, I came up with this all myself and I started it and I'm the first. I would like to think, and, and you know, the evidence is there, that my decades of research has spawned new training and new ideas. A lot of the, you know, I do stuff at like the highest levels of government and work with countries. We've got, you know, countries that have adopted our, our system and they don't, people just don't do that lightly. They don't go, Oh, let's just like close our eyes and pick out of a hat. This is like, you know, vetting and some stuff has taken years of demos and, and, and discussions and, and, you know, we have, you know, we're the only system in the world that has been medically and scientifically vetted by people independent who are not like on my board of directors. And, you know, there was a five-year study out of the UK, completely independent, that the stats revealed a 41% reduction in head trauma across the board over five years for incidents inside the reactionary gap. Do you know how insane that is? Like 41% reduction in head impact because like every use of force incident is documented, you know, in police agencies, they had a 29% reduction in use of force complaints. And subsequently you can figure this out. If good guys and bad guys are getting hurt less because of the 41% reduction and the 29% reduction use of force complaints, what's the agency saving? They figured out, couldn't be exact because they're extrapolating, but they figured that they were saving between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars a year, and this is just a small agency uh, in medical and health. You know, like where you know the year before this this the spear system study started, like if a cop had his hands in the steeple position near his belt, because you know we changed all that and said no, you're going to be in a nonviolent posture. This is a Trojan horse metaphor, and we got like six different stances you're going to be taught when you're negotiating with a suspect and you're discussing stuff, and 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 by having your hands in these positions, your fast twitch muscles fibers are activated. Plus, the body language is more congruent with de-escalation, which means anyone videotaping it looks like you're actually trying to you know, quell the situation and the suspect actually looks like you're trying to communicate and maybe less apt to violence. And if they do go to sucker punch you, this is neurologically tied into a, a startle flinch conversion. I don't know if that makes sense in audio. I see that whole thing in my mind, but you know, if your hands are down near your belt versus up in front of your face, like in a, you know, like, uh, you know, arms are crossed or your hands are out negotiating, you know, talk. And so we said, we're predisposing you for, we're predisposing the airbag to deploy and predisposing you to be closer, closer to weapon, closer to target, as we say, you know, to engage the threat if you go, okay, yeah, yeah, he just crossed the line. Here we go, bang, now. And so, like, th those little changes, so when people say there's nothing new under the sun, there's a ton of new stuff that we did by reverse engineering. Um, and this is where we get into, uh, you know, the weirdness in the industry. And it, the only weirdness there is, it's never from the end user. It's always from a competitor. So I'll just leave that out there and you read the subtext in that, um, <clears throat> where if I spend 10 years figuring out how to create a new, you know, shampoo or skin product using botanicals, and then I do all of my experiments and lab stuff, and then I come out with herbal essence or some new line that's made up of, and your argument is, well, I'm going to copy it because you're using plants and plants just grow. Like that's the argument people have, Right. 
You know, it's, and it's so, it's, it's so stupid, but we've come up with things that I can now evidence-based data or data, depending where you're from, uh, uh, and, and show actual data over a five-year period. And they're just releasing the other five years. Now it looks like the stuff is consistent. So over uh, 10 years, uh, it has maintained this 40% reduction in head trauma, almost a 30% reduction in use of force complaints and cumulatively millions of dollars in savings. And, you know, this isn't me teaching and me, you know, coming up with like, you know, some spin for Instagram. This is actual independent research from a police department. Um, and we just got it. Uh, we just got the latest stuff a couple of months ago. So we're figuring out how to disseminate that. And I said it earlier, you know, if you are active duty and you want to read this research to maybe consider looking deeper into our system, uh, you just need to email me from your government email address. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to be controversial when I say this. And, and the whole point, and I'm not going to ask this question in, to, in order to condone it from other people, but the whole purpose of, of what we both do, you do way more than what I do, but is officer safety. And do you think that even if somebody takes your stuff and they've, you know, misrepresented themselves, they've ripped you off, but in some way, shape or form, that has ended up saving the life of an officer or multiple officers at an agency or people in general. Do you think that's kind of worth it? I'm, I'm always grateful. Like with the higher copy and the other three instructors that worked for me that went off and copied my stuff, I've always said publicly, their students are safer. They're still douchebags for what they did, <laughs> but I'm happy if people are, are safer. And like the stories I've told you before, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, generous, generous. We scholarship a lot of people to our courses who can't afford uh, the training. We do a lot of battle buddy deals where, you know, we'll cut the price in half, come with, come with an, a colleague from your department. Uh, we do things because cops aren't paid enough and, and they don't get enough of the training as, as I mentioned with the force science research, you know, they only studied three countries, Canada, USA and the UK. Those are three big countries and said, like I said earlier, that the, the, the level of training the recruits get do not prepare them for the violence you're going to face, which is exactly what I've been saying for decades, you know? So, uh, hope, hopefully what, what people will do, you know, uh, you know, as to c conclude your, your, on your last question is that if you listen to this and I've had a lot of people say, you know, I've been using your stuff for years and it's about time I, I get certified. <laughs> and, you know, at that point, that's like their kind of apology. And I'm like, just happy to have them. I mean, they just realized, you know, why not? Because all of these people are paying somebody else. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, if you're, we have a bunch of Krav Maga instructors who got certified to teach and bring our scenario training system in. They still love their Krav and their combinations. You know, Bob Willis, I don't know if you remember the name Robert Willis. Mm -hmm. He wrote the uh, Street Survival and uh, Tactical Edge manuals for Caliber Press. Yep. Um, years ago. So these are encyclopedic books in every single police department. Willis saw me teaching in 1993 at an ASLEC conference. And he said, he comes up to me after, and Bob and I are still good friends to this day. He said, you teach the fight before the fight we all teach. I said, say that again. He goes, you teach the three seconds before the fight we all teach. And what he was talking about is like all of the the neuroscience, the emotional, psychological factors and everything that influence our complex motor skills and what we're going to do next. 
And, and, you know, here we are years later, we, you know, we say this is an evidence-based system. If a police department, if a chief of police found out that a trainer was misrepresenting themselves and that uh, some of the programming there, they weren't actually certified in that, that changes their liability. If there's a training incident or if there's an incident in the street and, and, and the training records are subpoenaed. I've had other people on the show and we've talked about that is from an instructor standpoint, you have to know where your liabilities are, not only for yourself, but for your agency. And, and a lot of the time though, it hog, it, I want to say it hog ties or restricts instructors from sharing useful information. But a lot of the times it can in that, you know, there may be something that they feel or they know works um, better is more applicable, but their agency hasn't approved it to be taught. And therefore they can't teach it because they put themselves at risk then. Right. So, I mean, it's like the perfect example would be something like um, uh, a, a vascular neck restraint or carotid restraint or blood choke or whatever you want to call them. Certain agencies say yes, and some agencies say no. And it's kind of that it's that hot button topic because it's like, are they useful? Are they not useful? Is it is the juice worth the squeeze almost <laughs> to, to use a horrible, horrible. Right. But like, what are your thoughts on that? Like for that specific because you're you have your kind of finger on the pulse of what's going on right now with training. So is that is that something that's still an issue or am I kind of am I making? No. Well, I mean, you know, there's so much politics and training, which is sad. You know, uh, you know, I've had officers you know, where I've said, Hey, you can come to the course for free you have no money. And the, you know, their leave is declined. Uh, there's, there's too much politics, too much fear, too much. Yeah. If something happens and you get caught on film, they, we don't want to show that we taught you a move because then I might not get reelected. You know, that's when you peel the onion, that's what it comes down to. Nobody, like a lot of people aren't doing the right thing. And there's don't, and don't get me wrong. There's a ton of, uh, really top notch leadership out there trying to do the right thing. But in with with respect to like the rear strangle, the LVNR, the reality is, what's the scenario? You know, it's the at the end of the day, every police officer should have every practical tool at their disposal, and they should be able to articulate why they had to use it. You know, and and so we know the rear strangle is a very effective way to restrain somebody and safely put them to sleep. But it's taught incorrectly by most people. And if you rush to it and the suspect is struggling, you run the risk of getting that forearm and turning it into like like a like an actual, you know, throat choke. And now you run risk of of injuring uh soft tissue, Adam's apple, trachea, windpipe. And and now somebody's like needs a tracheotomy on the scene and they die and you are going you know, you're approved for the lateral vascular neck restraint, but you weren't approved to kill the person by accident, right? So a lot of it is people don't know how to put it on properly. They don't know how to let it go. They don't know how to talk to somebody and stay calm. There's so many facets to communication from body language, to tone, to words, and all of that needs to be integrated in there. You know, if you're just screaming at people, drop it, drop it, drop it, and you're like doing nine things, you know, you, you'll see classic scenes of two cops facing an armed guy who's maybe looking at a police assisted suicide and one cop and the guy's got a knife in his hand and, you know, he's within striking range and both cops have their gun drawn and one guy's going, drop it, drop it. And the other cop's screaming, don't move, don't move. Who does the guy listen to and who shoots the guy? There was actually there was a video that just went viral a couple of weeks ago in that that pretty much exact same scenario. I'm sure you've probably seen that one. Yeah. You could almost see him thinking, 
of the steps as this person's rushing him. Right. And it, and it, I think it was a great example for instructors and trainers to use to be like, this is what it looks like in real life. Yeah. It's not like it is when we simulate it. And reality-based training and scenario-based training has come leaps and bounds in the last couple of years with what you guys are doing, um, with what the guys up here in, at SetCan are doing, the technology that's behind it. And, and the way that we're, we're starting to develop these training programs is amazing. It's, it's leaps and bounds beyond what it used to be. But we, right. you said we still can't replicate that that real situation. Well, the missing link there, and you know, I'm, I'm friends with the guys at set cam. And what was interesting is, uh, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but, uh, the, the only, cause I don't, I don't have permission to talk publicly about it, but they, you know, when, when, when the high gear got ripped off, they really backed me yeah. uh, on that. And, uh, what's missing from most agencies and individual scenario training is understanding how to train a role player and then gear that allows the role player to move like a real person. And that was the idea behind high gear. People don't realize I spent five years, five fucking years of my life developing that suit. So, um, and, but the, and it was a, a, you know, whittling away of what wasn't necessary. We'd put it on, test it. I'd get kicked. I get sucker punched. I get, and I'm like going, okay, no, I didn't feel that. So the padding's too, too thick there. And they're like, like the design engineers, what do you mean? Like, you want to feel it? I go, yeah, I want this to be impact reduction gear. I want you to feel, I want you to know that if you get hit, it's going to sting. It's going to wind you. Because if I take away the fear of impact, I don't stress inoculate you. And so that's a big, you can get all the technologies you want uh, and do stuff. And, and, you know, that's why the shock knife is so amazing. Cause nobody, you know, like you're like the electricity is going to be real. Um, and so with high gear, if you got both role players, good guy and a bad guy in high gear, then suddenly, you know, somebody's coming for your gun or to take you down or to punch you in the face. And the gear is going to disperse the impact, but you're going to get nailed. So what you start to see there, it's a great way to, I, I tell people like, like high gear is like a wrestling mat you wear. You wouldn't practice jujitsu or grappling on concrete. You do it on a mat. So where would you do scenarios? So if your scenario doesn't involve you know, working in real environments, you know, working, you know, in and around a car. We did, uh, you know, scenarios from one group that was, you know, for counter kidnapping stuff where people were thrown in trunks in high gear. And when the door opened, you know, it was like, okay, and this is your chance to fight. You're pulling you out of the trunk. You were knocked out, thrown in the trunk. Now you're conscious. You got out of your flex ties or duct tape or whatever. Now the fight is on. Right. And so they, you, you come out there, but you know, you're, you're bouncing around a car, you're falling on the pavement. That's total stress inoculation. Now, just to understand, you can jump right to that and keep it very intuitive, but there's a time and a place also in your training to learn how to throw a punch properly, a palm strike properly, an elbow, a knee, a shin kick, guard, reversal, mount. These are all like fundamental, either gross motor and or like bigger complex motor skills. The way we teach our striking is we tie it to give, give everyone a listening, a, a, a little hint or tip on this. You can make a knee really complicated, or you can say, look, your hip flexor has this particular range of motion, this kinetic chain of you lifting your knee to put your foot up on a chair to tie your shoe before a run is the same range of motion as a knee. So now you all know that you already know how to throw a knee. Now we're going to all, you know, practice hitting a bag or an air shield or whatever, and do it with aggression. Now we're going to do it in re in relationship to a stimulus. And so we develop suddenness and some power. And now we're going to start thinking about target. Okay. Now we're going to put guys in gear and see where you can slip that in 
in a real fight when somebody's trying to take you to the ground or get to your handgun or whatever. And that's a protocol that you would run through, but there's a system to that, right? And so what's really super, you know, what I think is a missing link in training is really good role-playing. At the end of the day, an individual's behavior is going to determine what you're going to do. So, you know, you, you, you walk in on somebody and you get, you know, called, Hey, shots fired. And you walk in and you hear a gunshot and then you walk in and the guy that shot a bunch of people is standing there with his hands up and the gun is by the floor and he's got his back to you and he goes, I'm unarmed. Like it's not a gunfight anymore. You need to transition really quickly, even though like half a second earlier, you were going, here we go, as you went in through the door, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what was in your mind, an active shooter is now like an unarmed uh, suspect. And so the transition and change has to be, you need to understand more of the neuroscience and how to, how to mitigate fear and, and, and how to adapt to that. So that's really the value of uh, scenario training. I see a lot of scenario training has a lot of people love to use the term scenario training, but what they're really doing is they're practicing moves. Yes. They're, you know, they, it's, it's shrouded in a scenario. We're coming in a room here, but, and I've seen a lot of tier one guys and stuff like that where they go, so what do you think? And I'm like on the catwalk watching, I go, that looked like a rugby match. I mean, you know, you looked outside, team is ready. You came inside and, and like I saw that, you know, the guys, you know, are inside in high gear and they're, you see guys in two point stances already, like waiting for the, you know, the SWAT team to come in. And I'm like, so as a program manager, like I'll, what I'll do often in a case like that is I'll, I'll say, show me what you're doing. And then I'll go, okay, like, that's good. How can we make it better? Consider this stuff. Right. And, uh, but that's, those are the epiphanies where I go like, this isn't like a sport you're training for, you know, you know, like shoot, no shoot, life and death, you know, decisions. It's like, shouldn't be a, a game. And it, and it, it, it almost shouldn't even be fun. It should just be fun because of the people you're with, but you shouldn't be like, like, you know, laughing and high-fiving and yeah, I tapped you out, man. I like a, and I've seen that all over the place where we need to get back to what, what was this designed for? You know, uh, there's a, a patent quote that I love to bring up when I see guys goofing around in training and, uh, so all military groups just to cre- keep morale up, you know, used to do like color wars back in World War II. Yeah. And, and Patton said, I never let my troops do color war. I never let them play with their weapons. It erodes the respect for what that weapon was designed for. And that, oh, I read that, I, that always resonated with me. You know, I would tell people, I, you know, I see guys having too much fun during a knife drill. I'd bring out two real knives. And I'd walk out with them behind my back and these guys are laughing and they're slashing at each other and, and they're kind of like just having too much fun. And I said, listen, you guys are obviously really good at this and having a lot of fun. So, you know, I'm going to bump you up to the next level. And they're like, okay, coach, I go here, you take this, you take this, go. And they're like, they don't even take the knives because now they're like, they're looking at the knife and I'm like, holy fuck. I go, it's not so funny anymore, right? You need to pretend those rubber knives are real. Don't fucking smile and go good shot when the guy just sliced your throat open. Like, it's like, no, you should be going, fuck. Like, that would suck. Okay, how do I put a tourniquet on my throat now and keep fighting, right? I'm glad that you you brought that up because I think that's something for anybody in law enforcement, military, security even, to realize that you have to, there's a level of training that, and 
a level of instructor training that you have to get to before you should be trying to to run these dynamic scenarios because you can actually do a disservice to the people that you're trying to teach. Yeah, there's there's at the risk of pissing even more people off, there's too many too many trainers out there teaching stuff they probably shouldn't be teaching yet. You know, and you can mean well and stuff like that, but you know, so so everyone listening like research your trainer and trainers like would you hire yourself for a private lesson? If a law enforcement professional has time and they're wanting to start something and get into martial arts training, where what would be your go-to like or or what would be like your top three or four places that you would recommend for somebody to start taking a look at? So, you know, you're going to be a surprised with what I'm going to say. It depends on the scenario. If I've got a cop who used to like, so there's a lot of cops in Florida that used to be uh, pro wrestlers, pro football players, and they're, you know, 6'4", 260. They're not afraid to, you know, fall off a ladder onto a floor, tackle somebody. They played football and now they're in law enforcement. Should they be studying jujitsu? I don't think so. You know, now if they go, I would like to be able to control somebody without killing them, you know, without injuring them. Uh, what should I do? Well, don't study Thai boxing now. Now you should study jujitsu. So I always say, what's, what's the, you know, what's the scenario? Like, meaning who are you and what skill set are you trying to develop? I've met, I mean, how many police officers have you seen in videos where you can tell by their face and their eyes that they're afraid to get hit and they're afraid of the violence that's about to happen, mm-hmm. right? A huge percentage. So those guys, I would say, you know, going to an intelligent boxing class and and learning how to move your head and learning how to take a punch and control how much you blink and control, you know, that that fetal response of turning your back on the threat and and how to return fire as a courage drill, right? Mm-hmm. Um you got you're a smaller officer and threats are potentially bigger. There's a good chance you're gonna go to the ground. I would recommend you study some jujitsu, you know, uh, you know, so there's like any good, you, you look at the tools you're going to need to, if the, if the fight's going to happen, right. Assuming that there's no de-escalation, you got to go hands-on, you know, would studying some more modern version of Aikido teach you about body angles and movement? Probably. I'm not a huge fan of Aikido, but what I'm saying is like, if you had, 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 if you could, if training funds weren't an issue and location wasn't an issue, you would probably do a little Aikido. You'd probably do a little judo, a little jujitsu. You'd do some boxing. You'd do some Thai boxing. You know, you, you would do some, uh, knife defense. You would do some, uh, uh, you know, uh, close quarter, uh, offline and contact shooting drills. Um, and, uh, you would mostly work on, I really believe in this and work on how to get out of moves rather than put on moves. Like if when, in terms of building plan, metaphoric nutrition plan, which like, which would have more value to you. I want people to learn how to escape danger before I teach them the offensive, you know, or the countering. Um, and the reason for that is, is that helps mitigate fear. And when you clear fear, the psychology of fear, then 
there's more uh, decisiveness and confidence in that movement. So I'll see a lot of suspects make moves on people because you can see fearful behavior in, in the officers. It's like, let, don't let the dog smell your fear. Mm-hmm. You know? So again, you guys don't take me literally listening to this. This is like, I'm talking about body language, but body language, if it's not a facade, it's, it's coming out of like a place of self-awareness. I'm good to go here. I don't want to do this, but I will. And so this is a super long answer for, you know, what should they do? It's, it's, it'd be like this. It'd be like, what you just asked me was, which firearms would you recommend? And I'm going, well, what's the scenario? Are you on a roof and you know that people are coming to kill you and your family and they're coming from miles out? You don't want a Derringer. Right. You want a 50 caliber Barrett rifle or, you know, some sniper rifle. Um, so I always look at like what's missing, what's already in your arsenal, what's missing in your arsenal and then travel further for better instruction. If the, if it's necessary and you might have somebody right around the corner that he's a really good striker. Like if you want to like, like MMA today versus MMA back in the day, people figured out. In 1993, when it when it hit, it was like style versus style, and then they realized nobody looked like they were doing anything except for, uh, you know, the Gracies for the close of the fight. Um, they dropped it as style versus style, and then it went to mono mono. Right, who's the toughest guy? Uh, and and then MMA evolved. So now you don't if you're studying at a at a true MMA gym you're not learning like 500 jujitsu moves and 500 kicks and 500 punches. You're not learning all the different, you know, Kung Fu forms to do learn striking power. You're, you're learning some of the classic st- striking jab, cross uppercuts and hooks. You're learning how to go to the body. Then you're learning, you know, a couple of elements of, you know, like you can study Thai boxing, but if you're in an MA gym, they're not going to teach you the, you know, the, the salutation and ritual when you come in there, they're going to teach you how to leg kick. And you could see it in the form under stress, you know, in, in, in an MMA fight. It's the attrition and toughness and courage of the fighters. You know, you don't look at them and go, that guy's an amazing, and there are anomalies, but what they're doing is they're, they're cherry picking the most efficient and effective moves from a variety of, of protocols and putting that in, that's their toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. And then the rest is mindset and some, and some strategy. So, so long answer is, you know, using the firearms metaphor, Hey, what firearms should you recommend? You know, uh, should I buy this like gun from China or should I get a Glock? Well, you know, I haven't cleaned my Glock in three years and it still shoots fucking straight. I should probably clean it, you know, but, but you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, Hey, I got this really cheap ammo, you know, like, no, right. If you're going to need this in a life or death situation, like spend a little bit more, Think about that. If you're going to use these skills in a life or death situation, spend a little bit more. And if and if you have an amazing school or schools, uh, I've got I've got friends in the community that they go to jujitsu twice a night, they go to an MMA gym like twice a week, they 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 CrossFit, they you know like they're fucking like gladiators. You know, they're not like no, this is the only school. And hopefully, like the end of my answer really struck a chord with people you know it it, you can't be cavalier about this like one of my favorite memes is violence doesn't care what martial art you study 
right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't care. You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, um, stories that I bring up in seminars of where we say, Hey, look, here's a world-class jujitsu guy that, that got killed in this event with one guy. How did that, how does that possibly happen? Oh, the guy had a gun. He tried to do the right thing, but he did it the wrong way. He tried to, you know, stop a, uh, an armed robbery on a bus and he got, he got shot in the face and he died. I'm not making fun of anything. It's horrible. I feel horrible for his family. And, and, and that's not what I'm saying is like, like if you've never done practical gun disarms and done them with scenarios and training to feel like, like this just doesn't go down like this, you know, that's why the, you know, the, the scenario training is like at the end of the day, Bruce Lee said, you can, you can't learn to swim standing on a beach. You can get in a pool and splash around and swim around and go, yeah, like, yeah, bring on Jaws, motherfucker. And then, you know, someone says, really? And throws a shark in the pool? <laughs> like, like, suddenly you just fucking shit your pants and pissed and you're scrambling to get out. You're not like swimming around anymore. You're like, holy shit, you're freaking out. Right? So, like, that's the real fight is and and have you acclimated to that? Yeah, absolutely. You've seen that. I mean, you can see that too. And uh, there's thousands and thousands of scenarios where you'll have one person that's starting to pick a fight. Maybe it's at a bar or or anywhere out in the public, maybe at a Walmart or whatever. But one person's real high on their horse, talking a big game, tough, tough, tough. And then they are expecting the other person to step down. And then that other person steps right into them and is ready to go. And that first person backpedals pretty quick because they weren't expecting that response. Rory Miller does a good job explaining that whole psychology. Uh, even worse is when that person steps in firing a punch. And, and that's when, you know, you see a lot of like cold knockouts like that because someone's just posturing and it hasn't even occurred to them. They've just been a bully all their life. So they're like going, fuck you, fuck you. And then boom, somebody headbutts them or sucker punches yeah. them. I mean, it's entertaining to watch. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I mean, some of the funnier videos out on YouTube right now are of uh, those types of situations, but you know. Yeah. You know, you'll get to the point. I, a couple of years ago, had to stop watching that. And I just, I can't even watch it. I know where it's going. I know what's happening. It disgusts me. It, 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 and this is, I'm not, I'm not like shining a spotlight on what you're said. This actually ironically ties back to, you know, the first third of our conversation about evolution that, Hey, I wish 15 years ago, blah, blah, blah. I don't look at, I abhor violence, which might sound weird to people. Uh, I abhor violence. I don't watch murder videos. I don't watch beheadings. I don't, I live with so much passion to try to help save people that when I know it's done and I know it's going to happen, I can't watch it. I'm not even interested. I'm interested in the fight before the fight. I'm interested in teaching people how to not fight and teaching people how to not fight requires they understand, you know, uh, Bruce Lee said, I don't know if he got this or if it's from Zen samurai stuff, but he said to, you know, rid yourself of the disease. You must first become one with the disease. And so the disease of violence, and there's a play on words I like to use there is disease, you know, spell disease, but a hyphen, the disease. I am uncomfortable with violence. If you get comfortable with violence and you're, psychologically got your shit together you know you don't like like i've gone out with people and they know my background i'm in a bar and they're like all puffing their chest and they're walking i go listen if you cause a fight <laughs> you're on your own right you're on your own and i will videotape it and i will talk about you i will talk about you in a seminar motherfucker yeah been there before yeah 100 yeah. 
you know, and it's amazing how like, oh yeah, Tony's here. Like, no, I don't, I don't want to fight. I never want to fight. Yeah, exactly. We kind of went down the rabbit hole on uh, on a few different things here today. But one thing I wanted to make sure that, that you got out there is what is what's upcoming right now, Blauer Tactical, and what do you got going on in the in the world of Tony right now? Cool, man. Uh, try to answer this in less than two hours. I'm working on three books, uh, one on fear management called No Fear, Manifesting Courage, another one on the science and psychology of defensive tactics training and, you know, aptly called like Why Cops Lose Fights. And um, another one called, you know, be your own bodyguard for the general public. And, uh, you know, training my team, we've got about 21 people on our team now and train, doing courses all over the world. You know, we got high gear back last year. Uh, that was an amazing thing. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're reconnecting and, and not rebranding because we're always, you know, selling it. So a lot of big things as far as the high gear evolution, uh, looking for ambassadors in that uh, we're got a cool ambassador program. We've got some of the best uh, scenario-based trainers, martial artists, self-defense instructors doing that where, you know, they've used high gear before and they're going to start bringing it in. Because I really believe the end game, like Bruce Lee's statement, you can't learn to swim standing on a beach, is do you have a system to pressure test the theoretical value or application or efficacy of your system? I don't care if it's Tai Chi, Taekwondo, MMA, combatives, whatever it is. At the end of the day, create an intelligent scientific scenario. Don't try to win it. Don't try to do moves. Just experience it. You know, find out like, like, holy shit, I was out of breath there. Oh, yeah, you're not doing diaphragmatic breathing. You don't know you're doing combat breathing. You're, you know, you're, you need to study breathing. That will change everything in your fight. Oh, your breathing was fine, but, you know, you, you, you went to the ground in every scenario and then you didn't notice there were multiple assailants and then two guys came and kicked you in the high gear helmet. You know, yeah, don't predispose yourself to go to the ground, you know, so... So there's a, there's a, a lot of things we're working on. We're working on a whole online online pro, uh, program, one for cops, one for our our mindset, and uh, shit. Uh, and you got your podcast. Yeah, I got, and my my podcast is actually, I love it. And I love talking to people, uh, but it's 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 really just something. It's a labor of love. You know, I'm not trying to monetize it. I'm not trying to, you know, hit a number with it. I've got about. You know, we've done 59 already, mm-hmm. um, and I just started it last year, uh, which is amazing. And I've already got, I got 20 in the can. I just don't have time to, like, like I do all, I do all my copy. I don't have a company doing my copy. So I write, like, all the, all the, everything you see on social media is done by me. I actually answer every fucking comment myself. I get a lot of emails from people going, dear Mr. Blauer or whoever is managing his social media account, because people know, you know, most people don't do it. I... No, I, I still do that stuff. And I get, you know, business consultants and, and advisors and stuff that go, you shouldn't be doing that. I go, I really like it. I, that's, it's, it's part of the authenticity of my company. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's nice that you're able to do that, that podcast. I know because I just, based off what you said, I mean, you have tons of free time to do that. Um, <laughs> on, on, right. right. So, so it, make, then, it makes sense that you'd add that in there. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm so passionate about the stuff you know, I, 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 I get into it and, and then I got to go and why I'm thinking, why I'm going. And I got a meeting in an hour that I got to drive an hour to, so we got to get off. But, but it's, it's, uh, why do I, I, you know, why not just end it at, at, at an hour? Because I still fucking live this shit and I love this stuff. And I'm hoping that one person or a hundred people listen to this and go, this is for real. 
and this guy's for real and his message is for real. And they'll either do the deeper research into it and go, holy shit, because I can make anybody safer sooner. And I've had like world-class MMA guys in there. I've had tier one operators. And they're, we asked them all the same question. If you had to fight you on Monday versus you on Friday, who wins? And I've never had anyone say me Monday. And now I'm confused. Everyone says today, hands down. Because we're not just, we're not like, like everyone comes in, they know how to shoot. They know, they know knife work. They know, you know, gun. Some of them don't know shit. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is everybody is already physically adept at something, even if it's just brawling. But what we're teaching is a way about self-awareness, fear management, how to look at scenarios differently, how to see it as a blueprint from an architecture point of view. Don't just like, oh, I'm a hammer, you're a nail. It's not about the technique and the tactic. In fact, I always tell people, don't confuse technical with tactical, yeah. right? Yeah. So so it's a, it's a lot more. So I just, you know, I stayed on because I want, I'm hoping through some sort of osmosis through your your digital osmosis that people are inspired to get out there and and go train whether it's me with me or my company or or some other company that shares the same values right on man yeah i hopefully throughout all this we can we can stay in touch and uh, maybe maybe do this again sometime down the road and i'm hoping one day soon here i can uh, make it down there and we'll uh, we'll have a coffee or something but i really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, hopefully we can do it again Absolutely, man. I love it. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we linked up and, uh, and uh, we'll definitely stay in touch. For sure. Okay, Tony, thank you so much. Uh, have a great rest of your day and good luck uh, with what you got to do. Okay, be safe. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, that's a wrap on this episode with Tony Blauer. Now, again, if you want to hear more about who Tony is and what Tony does... Check out thebreakdown.ca forward slash 013. That's the show notes page. There's going to be all the links to his websites, to the No Fear podcast, and everything that you need to know about who Tony Blauer is, if you don't already know. Coming up on the podcast, the next episode is going to be with Mr. Jay Dobbins. If you don't know who Jay is, Jay was an ATF special agent, uh, wrote a little book called No Angel. You've probably heard of it, and if you haven't, get on it right now. Jay was one of the first, if not the first, law enforcement agent to fully infiltrate the Hells Angels. He has an amazing story. So to make sure that you're going to get that podcast right when it rolls out, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Once you're already on the website, super simple. Click the subscribe button, pick your favorite app, download it, subscribe to the podcast, and we will see you next time on The Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.